Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The race is on and there are two battles raging right now in Formula One. The one on track between Mercedes and Red Bull and the one off track to develop the new cars to 2022 regulations. But what should we expect from next year's cars? And what does their development mean for the rest of the 2021 championship fight? I'm Ed Straw and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell and Gary Anderson. Well, hello, Gary. I'm not sure how much you can talk about this, but I believe you were reunited with the Jordan 191 this week. Yes, I was. It was uh, it was quite a good day, actually. Um, Sky set up a, a, a little drive for... Um, Mick Schumacher in it to sort of commemorate 30 years since Michael drove it at Spa. So, um, yeah, he had a drive around Silverstone with it. It was nice to see it again. I think Karen had a little drive as well. Um, nice guy, nice to meet him and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was pretty nostalgic. Um, one of the biggest things as well was on, on the headrest of the car, there was Andrea de Cesaris, Michael Schumacher and Alex Zanardi. All their names were on the, on the car. Obviously, there was others who drove the car as well, Bertrand Gascio and Roberto Moreno and... John Watson and lots of people, but those three, you know, um, as we know it at this point in time, you know, all suffering, all gone from this world. So it's um, it's one of those situations where it was it was quite a quite a tearjerker, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I, I really loved the car. Um, never had driven with a um, an eight shift before. It did, the only cars he drove with a gear change had a sequential gear change, so a bit of a learning curve for for Mick. But uh, I think he enjoyed his little trip out in it. I think Sky are going to be showing that around the Belgian Grand Prix weekend in a, in a few parts, so that'll be something to look forward to. Scott, any brushes with Grand Prix cars in Sweden? I guess there's not a huge amount of them hanging around in your neck of the woods. Uh, no, the the closest I've come to a Formula One car in Sweden was when I went to uh, the Jelorosen Arena a couple of years ago for the Canon Loppet event, which was a combination of the Carrera Cup Scandinavia and uh, TCUK Scandinavia. And there was this... Um, I don't know what to how to describe it, but there was this weird sort of mutated beast of a car that sort of looked like um, it 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 looked like a, either late two thousands. I think it was a late two thousands Williams. It was either the nine the nine maybe the two thousand nine or two thousand and ten car. But I don't know what engine was in the in the back of it. I I could not tell you what engine was in the back of it. All I know is it was not covered fully in bodywork, but it was just doing demonstration laps. Um, around it and it turns out I don't know what the name of the company is so I can't give them a shout out on this podcast but this this car basically um, they take it around and they like tour tracks at Sweden and you can hire it you can actually like do you know like you do single seater experience days in the UK uh, where you can do that over here with all sorts this one being this I, I honestly don't know what to call it this donkey mule car thing of uh I, I don't know what they ran together but it sounded quite cool <laughs> excellent that shows what random things do uh do turn up the cannon loppet used to be quite a big race didn't it for like f2 and i think they even run it for f1 cars way back in the uh way back in the day so uh it is still running off of the history and prestige of the 1960s let's put it that way 
But let's get on with what we are here to talk about. Scott, I'm sure everyone saw that 2022 show car that F1 unveiled at Silverstone recently. From what the people actually designing the real cars have said, how close a guide do we think that is to the real thing? Yeah, uh, so F1 did reveal this life-sized version of of its own 2022 car model, um, complete with a a garish livery (laughs) with a holographic effect. Um, But... I think we we can take it just as an aesthetic baseline. It, obviously, this isn't a prescribed design because F1's not a single-make formula. Um, it was just one interpretation created by F1 and the FIA. And if you remember back in 2019, when the rules were first published, F1 did mock up this design. They created renders of it. We even saw a, a, a scale wind tunnel model um, of it. But when they did that, because this this design is almost identical to that one from late 2019. But when they actually did that, F1 did mock up three different designs within their paperwork for their launch presentation of the new rules. That They did these three different designs to show that the new regs apparently aren't going to be too prescriptive and that there would be plenty of design freedom. But anyway, the, the initial word when obviously the real world, the real life show car that F1 has made was created and, and shown at Silverstone was that it is highly unlikely the F, the final version will closely resemble this launch variant but that basically depends on what you define as you know closely resembling it and, and what you what you count as as looking different um, because to achieve lower costs and l- less complicated aero surfaces which is the whole point of these new rules uh, there, there are more prescribed shapes and dimensions than ever and the only real element dictating the visuals of the cars these days is the surface arrow, and that's more restricted than ever. So there are still bound to be areas open to interpretation, but it just seems that they're going to be the sort that require a, a side-by-side careful comparison or a zoomed-in photo to really make out, rather than one of us, or more likely Gary, being able to look at a studio shot or an image of a car living in the garage and going, ah, oh, that's, a, that's a very different shaped thingamajig or gubbin. And and that would tally with what the top teams are saying. They're claiming that their actual cars are going to be minimally different visually to this model. Uh, the leaders of the top teams have all indicated that the rules do leave little room for variation on the major components that define the car's aesthetics. So you've got Red Bull saying there's going to be very slight variance on a theme. Uh, McLaren boss Zach Brown, who has obviously seen the 2022 McLaren, says his car is or his team's car is subtly different to the championships and reckons it's only when you start looking into the detail you start to see the differences. Uh, and that was all supported by Mercedes as well, who said that there isn't going to be a, a visual revolution come launch season next year. Uh, on, on a slightly different theme, um, Alpine Executive Director Martin Budkowski said that F1 will remain far from a one-make formula with these new rules. But that's really about what teams have to design themselves. They, I don't think they need to look stunningly different on the surface to satisfy the fact that F1 isn't a one-make formula. And to be honest, if you uh, if you really look at the 10 different teams across the grid, the designs haven't looked that different for a while, have they? Because there's always this talk about if you got rid of all the liveries and put them all, if you put silhouettes of all of the cars together, would you be able to tell them apart? But um, I think the, the, the main point with this model is obviously it's the first time F1's ever said, okay, this is a six, seven, eight month head start for launch season next year. Here's what we think you're going to see. So that in itself is, is quite interesting, even if the final product does have small but significant differences. Well, it's 152 pages of technical regulations, Gary. I'm sure you've read through it. And as Scott was explaining, it does seem like the, 
the the show car kind of on the macro level is is broadly what we're going to see, but there's a lot of scope and detail. If you if you were a designer designing cars today, would you be reveling in the freedom you've got, and how much scope do you think there is? Um, I think I'd be pretty disappointed actually because it's now not become a, a, a set of regulations where you can look to find, as we call them, grey areas. There's very, very few left. Um, the way the regulations are written is sort of a completely different philosophy to before, whereas before you, you had areas where you couldn't put stuff um, and basically where you could put stuff, you could put whatever you wanted. But now even those things that you could put in there are, are defined in shape. Um, for example, you know uh, um, some of the veins underneath the leading edge of the underfloor, the radius, the height, um, the curvature, everything is is actually defined plus or minus a little bit. So the the devil's definitely going to be in the detail. But if I was you know a creative design engineer trying to read through the regulations and find out where I could exploit my expertise, um, I would be a bit disappointed because they are becoming more and more limited. It's still the same challenge. But the, the return for your for your challenge is, is very small. So will it lead to, to more um, closer racing? Um, you know, through the years, we're always going to have good teams and, and, and teams that are not so good. Um, and that's what makes the sport. It's the same as, you know, playing tennis or, or golf or cricket or, or anything, athletics. It doesn't matter. There's people that are better at it than other people. That includes the teams and the drivers. And... Um, I'm afraid those 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 guys are still going to do a better job because that's that's what they do, you know. So, from a from an engineering point of view, I think it's a bit sad that it's gone to the level it's gone to. I would have probably have taken a simpler route, um, especially with the you know the budget caps that we've got now or the budget cuts even that we've got now for some teams. And the coronavirus is still hanging around us. I mean, nobody can really guarantee where where we're going racing at. There's still question on some of the races for this year, and I'm sure that will continue into next year. It's not gone away by any means. Um, so at the end of the day, we've got this huge expenditure um, for a brand new car and, and more or less a brand new philosophy and design. Um, so uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I think I would have looked very seriously about just eliminating barge boards from the current car, uh, reducing, the, again, the front wing elements from five to a maximum of four, um, a few more controls around that frontal area, um, perhaps um, giving the diffuser a little bit more scope for to work a little bit higher at the rear, um, and saying you're, you're at least then sticking with the same philosophy or the same understanding as the current cars. Um, now, that you could say that would never make um, Alfa Romeo a, a race-winning and championship-winning team, but neither is a new set of regulations because, you know, you are who you are unless you hit something really really lucky there is no way a small team is actually going to really take on uh, the might of mercedes or or red bull or ferrari from the simple fact that you know they don't have the depth and the expertise that these other guys have so it's all about the expenditure in the past has made these top teams hugely you know structurally very very sound and that's not going to change just because of budget caps I'm I'm quite interested. Uh, I'm quite interested to see sort of how much of an exercise it is to identify where those areas of differentiation are. Because even this year, obviously, you had that we had the rule change with the you know four small but significant areas around the rear of the car, and it it became quite interesting, didn't it, to see right, okay, what's going to be the trend? And we quite quickly saw there was obviously a couple of different names of it, but like the sort of Z-shaped floor, people going down that direction, seeing 
little winglets and then like the sort of Venetian blind style things crop up and we people people do care about this stuff it's just it, it, I don't I don't I, I think I think it is a shame that you don't have this sort of same level of sort of bold uh I'm not saying that there isn't create, creative freedom because of, as as Gary was explaining obviously these guys are still really clever and doing an amazing job but the stuff we see that's why everyone cared about the um the das that mercedes had isn't it because it was something visual that you could physically see and it was like oh this is amazing and the only remotely definitive thing i could say from when f1 did this launch event was that 24 hours later they uh they fired out a bunch of images of the same mock up with the 2021 liveries with the of the of the current teams, obviously, well, nine of the ten teams. I can leave you to guess the one that didn't give permission for its <laughs> images to be used. But I thought that was a good indicator of sort of what people care about because while I do, I want to say like I, I do really care when you can actually visually distinguish between the different cars because I, I think that's just interesting to see these brilliant minds and actually be able to tell the story. Because it is just, and you guys know better, way better than I do about this. It can be difficult to explain to people how much things are changing. You know what influence designers are having and stuff like this. But those liveries were a good example of what I think sort of the the sort of generic reader or fan or or viewer cares about. Because even with this being twenty twenty two liveries on a standard template car, people kept. I I think people cared a lot more about those or engaged a lot more in that than they did the championship's interpretation of its own rules. And actually, uh, even if this were the 100% final design, I'm pretty sure the aesthetics of the car would immediately improve because once those real liveries were applied, I immediately sort of thought, oh, this actually, it looks nicer. I'm not going to say whether or not I think the, the new cars look amazing, but I actually thought the customization of the base model with the new liveries, I thought, actually, that makes me care a little bit more. I can kind of invest a little bit more in this because it isn't just a generic template. And I wonder if when we get to whenever it's going to be, February probably next year, and you have all these designs uh, all these designs revealed, I'm sure we're all going to be looking for those points of differentiation. But there's probably going to be quite a few more people just looking at the paint schemes and and how cool the cars look on on with, with their new rule sets. What is quite interesting is, while teams now are getting quite a steep development curve in terms of what they're finding with their wind tunnel work, etc., how quickly that begins to level off. Because when you've got prescriptive rules, there's only so much you can do. How big do you think that effect will be, Gary? Do you think we'll get one year into the regs and people will be working in such a confined area that actually there's not that much more to be found or they have to be really innovative to explore other areas to, to get that performance? I think you're going to find um, very similar to what we have for, for 2021, really. You know, the rules were changed a little bit because of the Z floor or the angle initially and then the Z floor popped up. And to be honest, there's, there's one um, objective with any of these regulation changes and that's to get the best, best out of it you can. And 2021 showed that you know, nobody's been too proud to, to copy other people. Um, as I say, the, the floor cutout started off as an angle. Then someone, one team did the uh, the Z cutout, as it's called. And then the rest, you know, followed suit as such. So the the fact that tur- the more turning veins at the front of it, the turned up front corner, you know, Mercedes have done that now, trying to get the front of the floor to work harder. So you your losses um, are less, instead of trying to get the diffuser to work harder, when you've got more leakage under the sides of the floor, get the front of the floor to work harder because nothing's changed in that area at all. 
um, because you can make that work harder than the, the sum of all the, the parts that make the underflow work ends up making it all work you know work better. And the, the same will be for next year. There'll be uh, there'll be a you know somebody will get it right. Um, that could be a small team with luck, but it could be a big team just because of experience and because of um, tooling, equipment, uh, understanding, simulation. You know, lots and lots of reasons. Um, and as I say, you know, we've heard the Ferrari drivers saying they've been in the in the simulator with the aero characteristics of the of the new car, and it's very different. You know what they can do is plug in basically an error map for the new car and, and and let the drivers have a bit of a fling and see what happens. Um, so they won't have all the final detail. They won't have all the, you know, they won't have all the final detail as far as the, the the characteristics of the car is concerned. But they'll have a base idea of the downforce loss, and you know one team will come out with that, and then the other ones will will if, will follow suit as such. If there's little detail changes that are different. Um, the big the big problem is with any regulation change is there's obviously going to be people get it right and people get it wrong. And for the people get it wrong, it's normally the smaller teams that have the lesser budget, and they will you know they will fight to to put together the the new parts. They'll fight hard um, within their budget control just to you know change the car. And that, and that's sort of the wrong way around to be honest. It's a it's a bit of a strange philosophy because the the big guys have the money and normally get it right. The small guys haven't got the money and normally don't get it right and have to. Uh, follow suit so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a tricky area i think and but we will see it all it all head towards one direction and and everybody will follow that direction whether it's over a year or over two years i'm not quite sure but it, it won't take that long for everybody to get on the best path i suppose you might call it there's a lot of talk about um the sort of the, the, these designs will obviously converge like they they always do when what gary says people find the best solution and then everyone arrows in on that but and and the teams do expect that to happen. I think they also expect that to happen a little bit quicker, just because yes, it's a major new rule set, but because there is this fear of it being prescriptive that there won't be sort of too too many different clever solutions. But how do you square that with the, um, the obviously that you had the whole uh, pink Mercedes controversy that then the FIA said right, we're going to stamp this out. We're going to stop people people being able to copy designs, and you're going to have to show that stuff is sort of originally yours. I mean, I know that it isn't quite as simple as, right, that's it. You can never have a part that looks like another car's part again. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had this thing with the floors this year, would we, when everyone sort of merges on the Z floor design. But if someone's sort of listening to this and not quite understanding how you rationalise one with the other, how how would you explain that, Gary? Well, I think it's a bit it's a bit tricky, but, you know, in, in theory, what the regulations are written around the, the, uh, the car that the that F1 produced so in reality, everybody will be um, copying or whatever that of that, that car because that's the that's the that's what F1 would like to see. They would like to see a car based on that philosophy. Um, and uh, but uh, the detail, the finer detail, is always very very difficult to, to copy. So there's nothing stopping you still taking pictures and doing it. I mean, I think you know, the the um, Aston Martin, the pink Mercedes, whatever you like to call it. You know, it's always one of those sort of questionable areas as to how far you can go. But I think this now the regulations are such that the who you can get stuff from, who you can buy it from, who you what you have to invent yourself is fairly well uh, defined. So I think that will separate that as opposed to copying a picture you can take in the pit lane, which I think has always been acceptable. But it's very very difficult to copy it correctly. But the one thing with the new car is that I suppose. There is a lot less parts. If you look at that car, there is a lot less of it than there is of um, of the current car. 
And by doing that, obviously, you're taking away all these toys that the engineers try to optimize. Um, so if this car has got 60% of the parts that the current cars have, or the new car has got 60% of the parts of the current car, then obviously that's a lot less for them to exploit little vortices from or you know, change the curvature of or whatever. So there's a, you know, there is a lot less parts, which makes it you know, a different direction completely, to be honest. We talked about the look of the cars and the scope for development, but obviously, Gary, one of the key aims is improving raceability, as they've called it. So less turbulence, easier to follow. The analysis F1 originally did while compiling these rules found that the 2022 car, as they see it, retains 86% of its maximum downforce when a car length behind another compared to 55% currently. How likely is this to work? I appreciate this is kind of calling the wind tunnel in your head into uh, into action here, but it's it's quite accurate. So you, you might have a feel for how well this is going to play out. Well, what you're saying is the numbers they've published sound quite accurate, yeah? I think that's, the, I think that's what you're saying, really, isn't it? Well, I, I believe the numbers they've published are, are well-researched, but it, it's whether that translates into the effect next year, I guess, doesn't it? It's a theoretical maximum, isn't it, rather than like a guaranteed thing so it's kind of like their best case scenario <laughs> well yeah i think i think your best case scenario is ideal uh, ideally right you know 86 percent retaining 86 percent of, of whatever downforce they've got um is obviously a big improvement on retaining 55 percent of the current i don't think there's uh, let's put it like this i've seen cars following each other and you know once they get to within half a second um, let's say, or you know, even a second. You have to be within a second to get the DRS. We have seen cars following other cars through um, fast, reasonably high-speed corners reasonably well. Now, if you can cut the downforce by almost 50% for that car that's following the leading car through a given corner, then I think, I think it's not, you're not exploiting the downforce too well. Because the first thing is you lose front end, so the car will understeer a bit. But there's no way that second car, when it's within one second, and we've seen it time and time again, no matter whether it's a medium-speed corner or a high-speed corner, we've seen it time and time again. Yes, it does suffer, but it doesn't suffer by 50% of its grip. That's that's for sure. So the fact that they, they, they publish the fact that you're losing 55% of the... Uh, no, con- uh, retaining 55% of the downforce... I don't think that number's correct. I would have said that number is more, personally, from my experience and from what I see, I would have said that number is more like 70 to 75% that, that's retained from a, uh, the following car. And most of the loss, the majority of the loss is front end, so the car understeers a bit. You'll always see it running wide. Um, so I don't believe 55%. That's step one. I'm, I'm pretty stubborn that way because uh, I have not done it worked in the wind tunnel with it but I, I look at reality so with the new car obviously we have to look and say well what is the what is the peak downforce for the new car the, you cannot take away all the surfaces that's being taken away um, from the current car and all the gizmos and aim to have, have the same downforce level because there is nothing fundamentally bigger or more grunty on the car you know the, there's, there's, the underfloor is going to be more powerful for sure but the wings themselves are coming down. There's a four, uh, four element instead of five element. Um, the end plate detail has changed quite dramatically, both front and rear. The rear wings changed dramatically. So there's going to be a, a reasonably major loss in downforce from the new regulations immediately, which is why you're not going to get the same loss um, whenever you're in traffic. So, but 
I think the numbers, the reality of the numbers, when the teams have finished designing the car, the reality of the loss we have currently and the, and the loss we have with the new car will be insignificant, I suppose is the best way of putting it. I mean, it, it might be 10% difference, but it's going to be insignificant to the viewer or the spectator or the enthusiast because the tyres change by more than that. When you get behind somebody else, yes, the car slides around a little bit, but if you take that instant where you get behind another car, you can normally follow for a couple of laps and, and you know, the tyres are okay, then they start to overheat. So I don't think the numbers are going to be anywhere near as dramatic a change as what we're seeing now. And um, the, the thing about it is there's nothing that's going on the car that I see that is going to be um, less efficient. The, the, you know, the underfloor is a more efficient mechanism for making downforce. The rear wing is one of the least efficient pieces for making down, pieces on the car for making downforce. The barge boards are very efficient because they work the underfloor. So the, the, these cars, these new cars, are going to be rocket ships um, as far as top speed is concerned, because the wheels, the tire, the tires are the same size, very little difference in them. Basically, the, the actual external cross section, the the drag. We've got the little mud guards on top of the front wheels, which again will make that more efficient so I think these, these new cars will be substantially less downforce, maybe 20% um, in the end 25% to begin with probably but um, quite a lot faster in a straight line um, so you know the, the DRS solutions, how's that going to work, all that sort of stuff I don't see them being better in traffic because I don't believe the numbers that I'm reading are real um, as far as the uh, losses of downforce are concerned those numbers feel like um, just a way for F1 and the FIA to advertise this collaborative effort that they've gone through because we know that when they've been advertising these new rules, the the, the work with the F1 in-house motorsport team and the FIA has been trumpeted at every opportunity. How many times have we heard that more research has been conducted for this set of regulations than any other? You know, We've heard things like... Um, when Pat Simmons was explaining their simulation work that's gone into it and he was speaking about how many runs they've done and how many hours it works out as. And he said that in terms of normal, in terms of computing hours, it's 471 years worth of computing on a, a sort of fairly decent laptop. So they're going an awful long way to stress how hard they've worked on these. And, and I think those numbers are just an, a, a further reflection of that. Keep in mind that when... They first broadcast this back in 2019. I remember Nicholas Tombasis, the head of single-seater technical matters at the FIA, saying that this number, this number, this theoretical best-case scenario number that they've created from their simulations, even that number will come down because they know that the teams are going to find ways to do things that they haven't quite expected. So that means that you're immediately working below their supposed optimal. Uh, situation uh, and since then we've learned that actually F1 and the FIA agreed to relax a couple of the areas to give the teams a bit more creative freedom which means that even though they're going to monitor that and they reserve the right to change the regulations if the teams use that freedom in a in a way that compromises the intended values of the new rule so if they if they use these freedoms to find a way that actually suddenly this you know the I don't know how what you want to call it the theoretical amount of downforce the car's going to keep is suddenly way lower than they expect they're going to say ah oh, no you've taken the mick there we're, we're we're changing this um 
they, they reserve the right to, to do all this, but that still means that when we get to the start of 2022, when we get into pre-season testing and the first couple of races, it's not going to be what F1 and the FIA expect it to be. And I think they know that. I think they've known that for, for two years now. So yeah, these numbers, are, they're great headline figures, aren't they? But I'm, I'm with Gary, even though I don't have access to his uh, mental wind tunnel and, and all of this, I see the same things that he sees on track. And I just, I just, I can't buy those numbers. There's stuff that I do buy into, I don't really buy into that. I think it's worth remembering as well that for all the talk about cutting turbulence, if you've got an object moving through the air at 120, 150, 180 miles an hour, that's going to cause a hell of a lot of disruption. And unless you can rewire the laws of physics, you're not going to be able to change that. You can mitigate it to an extent, certainly. But while aero dependency is is there, it's going to be a factor. One interesting thing, Gary, I think I, I sent you the thing James Key said, about if things do start to run out aero development wise it could become more of a mechanical battleground again which uh, i guess because you've been quite a strong proponent of not neglecting the mechanical side given that's how you you know that's how you introduce the car to the ground effectively through the suspension and the and the tires do you think there could be some some hidden areas for f1 teams to to exploit there down the line if they realize they are going down a bit of a, a dead end aero wise yeah but it's the return from it is is going to be more let's say, over a wrist then, as opposed to a one-lap special. Um, that, that's the biggest problem with it. You know, suspension and geometry and being nice to the tyre, using the contact patch completely, all that stuff is, is only good over long duration. So it, it makes very, very little difference when it comes to an, indi- an, in, an individual lap time with a new, set of new tyres on it and just wringing the car's neck. So it will be a different philosophy. I, I, I would say they have to go both routes, to be honest. They've got the opportunity now with the new car to... to you know, maybe start again, you might call it, um, and, and try to make sure that you don't compromise the, the mechanical side of the car as much as we have in the past. Because this the, the, the compromise built up, you know, three years ago, four years ago, it was a lot worse than it is now. At least now some people do have sensible suspension geometries front and rear. Um, not 100% sensible, but on the way to sensible. So they are, they are finding out there's no point in complaining and moaning about Pirelli tyres if you're actually just abusing the living daylights out of them, which is what you know a lot of teams have been doing. Um, so I see that as a part, a part of the jigsaw, building it up, but I, I see that as a part of the jigsaw fairly early, as opposed to something that comes in later on because you haven't got as much downforce. But just going back a little bit there to what Scott was saying about um, wind tunnel time, CFD time, and Pat Simmons saying they've you know had 500 years of, wind tunnel, of uh, CFD time to develop what they've got. Now, look at it logically, the teams don't have that opportunity. So the first thing, no team will actually run a tandem package to, to try and see if their developments they're making actually is going to hurt the car behind them. What they're going to be doing is exploiting their car to the maximum they can get to get the best downforce out of it because they know that's lap time. They'll be using the limited wind tunnel time and the limited CFD time to develop their car. And then they got this threat hanging over them that the FIA are saying, FIA are saying, well, we put your model into our our simulation, which is a tandem car, then, and we find that it's hurting the car behind. We're going to change the regulations within a budget cap. How does that all work? I mean, where do you, where does that stop at? And you know, we've seen it this year with the wings, with the flexi wings, mid-season a change coming in that you know many teams in the pit lane complain bitterly about. Um, you can't just change regulations mid-season just because you feel like doing it. There has to be some sort of stability. So you've either got to allow the teams to have enough 
CFD time for them to do their analysis, running cars in tandem, or you accept what's going on and this is a one-year, two-year, three-year, whatever, stability rule has to step in in the regulations to allow the teams to exploit the car the best possible and stay within their budget caps. And it's a fine, fine line because you could destroy Formula 1 very, very quickly by just being too clever. There's, there, there is a fast, there's a fascinating sporting and technical discussion to have around these rules and what F1 and the FAA are doing. But Gary's just touched on a sort of more philosophical element there that I think I also think is really, really important because there was, um, I can't remember who it was. Uh, I think it was in the FAA press conference with the team bosses, but I might be wrong. But it was a question that was asked by uh, the BBC's Andrew Benson. Um, and I thought he actually hit the nail on the head when he asked about you know what first of all what right does f1 have to 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 meddle to to that degree and say well we're, we're going to change this and and secondly so, you know should they be doing it doing it because if they're creating a set of regulations that they already think are really tightly uh tightly defined and they want to achieve all these goals and then you give them out to the teams and then the teams have restrictions from the regulation side the technical regulation side to do their job then they have restrictions on the financial side with which to do their job there are tighter aerodynamic testing restrictions than ever on wind tunnel and cfd they're going out and then doing the best job possible within those regulations is quite simply and i think it's an impossible question to answer on this podcast so i'm probably stitching you both up like it does does f1 and the fia do they have the right to do that is it right to then say okay well you know we've you've done all of this within all these restrictions we've given you but we actually don't quite like the outcome that we're seeing so we're also going to change it right now is that right not really because if (laughs) if 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 we're asking gary to design a formula one car to a set of regulations he will do it to the best of his ability interpreting the regulations as he can with the resources he's got and he'll try and make it look a bit like a Jordan 191 if he can for the aesthetic side. It's not, it's not as Gary said earlier, it's not within his objectives to make it raceable or whatever from a car behind perspective. It's to make the car as competitive as he can from his perspective. And I think it would be problematic if any shortcomings in the framing of the regulations or indeed the ambition of what the regulations think they can achieve, as I was saying before about you can't rewrite the laws of physics. I think for that to be blamed on the teams would be not ideal. I would hope that if the FIA and F1 do do anything, it's with an extremely light touch and only in extreme cases. But you, you can't you can't do that. No, I agree. I mean, I think we all know, and even the incident at, um, at Silverstone between Verstappen and Hamilton showed us that most teams and drivers know that if they can get their car at front on pole position let's say if the car's fast enough to do that with a new set of tires in it and you know ring its neck then that's the objective and there's a very very good chance you can go on and win the race so why should the teams try to compromise that because it'll still be exactly the same you know you still will have that exact same problem even if you've lost 20 percent of the downforce or 30 or 40 it's still exactly the same thing get it into clean air it will be better it will be better for you it'll be better for the tires um It'll be better for the driver to dictate the race. You know, all that stuff can happen. We saw with Leclerc, you know, at Silverstone, he got in that position. He he nearly he nearly pulled it off. Um, not quite, and for sure, if you look at it logically, you know, um, Hamilton had a faster car, but Hamilton was really the only one. 
um, that could have done any damage to Leclerc. I mean, and Hamilton drove within the car, knowing that the last couple of laps were where he needed to be at that point in time to try and overtake him. No point in overtaking him twenty laps before the end or twenty five laps. You know, what's the point in that? And, and running you, running too hard in your car, and destroying your tires. So Hamilton was on a get you home mode, and the the numbers were were balancing out as far as what Mercedes were looking at as to being able to win the race. So that was the right thing to do, but. It's all, for a team and for a driver, from an engineer, from a design point of view, it's all about getting your car to be quicker than the rest of the cars. And then after that, you know, everything will look after itself. We should remember as well, there is another party that is significant in this, and that's Pirelli as the tyre supplier. Their target letter, they need tyres that allow drivers to push. Crucially, they need to be less temperature sensitive because that's a big part of the following conundrum. You lose downforce, you're overheating the tyres, and then you have to back off. So also... That's one of the primary areas where it has to be looked at if Pirelli don't don't deliver that that product, which is quite a big ask actually to to come up with it. So it's it's complicated. And if these rules don't work from a raceability perspective, it's not automatically the team's fault, even if you do accept philosophically that they should have any responsibility to make that work. Yeah, I think that um, you know as far as Pirelli is concerned, it's a big job. These, these new tires apparently they're much much heavier than the old tires. Um, when you consider, well, the wheel and tyre, let's put it that way. So the 18-inch wheels with the Pirelli tyre on it, I'm not sure which is which, but um, obviously the sidewall is not a very heavy part of the tyre. So you're reducing that, and then you're increasing the diameter of the, the rims, the aluminium rims, which is you know probably heavier than the, the sidewall t- of the tyre. But I would have thought the two of them were very little difference in it, to be honest. Um as far as weight's concerned, but getting the stiffness into the rim is obviously something. Whereas in the tire, the tire, as you can see, moves around quite a lot. There's a couple of ways, but I, I'm, you know, what I'm hearing is it could be a wheel and tire is five or six kilograms heavier than it used to be, which is a, a huge amount. So, again, whenever we went from Bridgestone to Michelin's, as I've been through, you know, the, the Michelin tire was heavier than the Bridgestone tire. Bridgestone's philosophy was always for a very light tire that could get rid of the heat pretty quickly. Uh, Michelin had a philosophy of a very heavy tread on the tyre that would be a much more consistent heat. So Pirelli sort of stuck in the middle at the moment of trying to uh, achieve something. And I think it all depends on how the car regulations cater for it because I've never been involved in, in, in motorsport at any point in time where the car following another car didn't hurt in some way, whether it was Formula 3 or Formula 2 or you know Formula 3000, Indy cars, Formula 1 cars. It doesn't matter. These cars create, generate downforce to get grip, and a following car will always struggle with it, one way or another. And at the end of the day, that struggling, because that balance change or the less grip, will end up making the tyres overheat that bit. And that doesn't matter whether it was Goodyear tyres, Bridgestone tyres, Michelin tyres, it doesn't matter. It's always been a problem, to some degree or another. So I don't see what, what we're looking at now as being something that will make a massive difference. I could eat my hat on that, because... You know, it's for sure I can be, you know, very wrong. But I don't fundamentally see enough of a change for two cars, as you say, Ed, um, that, you know, are generating downforce, that are traveling at speed through the through the, uh, through the the air. There is going to be a disturbance. There's going to be a lighter weight in the car following it. That's why you get a tow, you know. So end of the day, this, those, those compromises, those laws of physics are still going to be there and and to a degree but it's um we'll have to wait and see february rule on february let's see what happens it is the sort of thing that i am 
I, I would file under, I'd be very happy to be wrong about this. <laughs> I, if it comes to February or March next year and we're all sitting there holding our hands up going, yep, we got that completely wrong. I'd be happy about that because going back to something Ed was saying about how if F1 does decide that the team's acting in their own interest has compromised the rules in a way that F1 and the FIA didn't expect, so they're going to intervene. As Ed said, I think it does have to be done with a light touch because we've already seen this year, a bit last year, but mainly this year, a bit more live intervention through the season through the use of FIA technical directives. And a technical directive tends to reiterate an existing rule or it beefs up the test of an existing rule. But if you're talking about teams doing something in the aerodynamic designs of their cars that compromises what F1 and the FIA expect to be the the actual uh, physical situation that plays out on track, the only way to address that will surely be to an actual change in the technical regulation. So then it comes down to when do you enforce that? Are they going to try and do that in season? Are they just going to wait and do it for the following season? Because if they're changing it for 2023, they go, okay, this hasn't quite worked out exactly how we wanted, but we're committed to this formula and we do think it can work. So we're going to tweak this for, for next year. That's I, I, I don't have a massive problem with that, but you're still, even then you're still getting into this situation of you've created of so many restrictive conditions and the teams and the cars are so different to how we've had it before and you're still trying to like squeeze some of the life out of it and that is where even if you tried to do it sensibly I still think you're I still think you're in really dangerous territory and and it will put people it will put people who appreciate that side of F1 off in a in a certain way so all I'd say is I if they go down that route I really hope the trade-off's worth it and we get incredible racing next year but if I want single make racing that's very entertaining then I'm happy I've recently started watching IndyCar over the last couple of years I'll just carry on watching IndyCar I won't need to watch F1 anymore (laughs) we should just pick up on one other point Scott Gary did allude to this earlier new regulations do offer an opportunity for chasing teams to leap forward some of the teams in the chasing pack McLaren Alpine and Aston Martin recently have stressed that the likes of Mercedes and Red Bull do have a baked-in advantage thanks to years of excess spending, even with the cost cap coming in. So do you think they're managing expectations or reflecting reality? Uh, I think it's a bit of both, and the um, the makeup of that depends on which team. So, for example, I think it would be really foolish for Alpine or Aston Martin in particular to start a... Uh, how to phrase this podcast appropriately. Uh, If they started a urinating contest, I think they would lose because given Alpine's general up and down form as Renault and even this year, um, and Aston Martin investing in new facilities that won't be up and running for a while, if they do start that kind of contest, I think they'll find themselves urinating into the wind a little bit because it's going to take a bit of time for that to work. But for a team like McLaren, that's a bit further ahead in, in, in the process overall. It's got good momentum behind it. I think it's a bit more about managing expectations. And and actually, to be fair, they have basically admitted that. And the reason for that is mainly on the McLaren side is uh, it's grander infrastructure. They're at a point now where the combination of the budget cap for the op- bigger opposition and also a strengthened financial situation for McLaren themselves, the, the annual spending isn't an issue now. They can go toe-to-toe with... With, with the big guns but the problem that they've got is um the the wind tunnel is is the it's the um toyota facility isn't it and the driver in loop simulator i think is so old wasn't it originally the first of its kind it's kind of like a 
Generation Zero simulator that it has obviously been updated since then, but the it's still based on technology that that is now quite outdated. So McLaren is building the uh, a new tunnel and a new simulator to to further its recovery. Um, but it is important to remember it hasn't won a race in even though it's had all of these, even though it's had all of these positives in recent years, it still hasn't won a race since what twenty twelve. So. There are still many factors in its favour, but there's still a big step to make. And what McLaren's trying to do is trying to make lots of small steps in the meantime so that when it comes to 22, 23 or 24, all of a sudden they have made a big step relative to, to now, but obviously they've done it in sort of smaller iterations. So they've, they've got all these factors in their favour. You know, they're back with Mercedes, which they had so much success with. They've got the budget cap that's cutting back the spending of the other teams. Um they're investing in these major capital expenditure products um, and you've got the new rules in 2022. So this is great. And there are also a couple of things in the background like the efforts that McLaren made in mid-2020 to get their financial situation sorted. It That did actually have, and I didn't know this until recently when technical director James Key told us, but that did pay off actually with immediate technological benefits at Woking because they were able to, to speed through some physical upgrades to the hardware that they use with their comp- uh, with their CFD work, and that's already assisting with the stuff that they're doing on the 2022 design. But the big new tools, the better simulator and the new tunnel, they aren't going to be having an impact until the 2024 car, which is why McLaren's sort of saying, you know, we're hoping to be closer in 2022, make another step, but realistically, in a straight fight, they're still going to have a key deficit for the first couple of years at the new re- uh, of the new rigs. Well, that's the the, the kind of negative view but we do have one of f1's great giant killers in our midst so what do you think gary what targets would you be setting if you were leading one of those group of teams technically all you can do is is set your standards as as high as you feel that that your company can achieve obviously you've got to this is a blind alley you're going down at the moment with the new car because there is no black and white set of numbers unless unless f1 have shared you know with the teams their findings as far as numbers are concerned certainly you know from the from the cars they've tested in the wind tunnel then everybody's starting from a clean sheet of paper and they're designing the car and they're setting their objectives for it so all you can do within your own group is to try to be as efficient work as efficiently as possible hoping that you're working more efficiently than some than the most of the other teams because you don't know there is there is nobody telling you this is the amount of downforce you've got to generate you know when and now this is going back obviously a long long time but it's just being up at Silverstone with a 191 the other day. You know, it's it's typical of that. You know, we, we joined Formula One as a as a completely naive team, to be honest. Um, we had no idea, done a bit of 3,000, thought, well, okay, regulations, they're not dramatically different from Formula 3,000. Um, things are a bit bigger here and there. You've got a bit more power, so we can afford a bit less efficient car and, and we should be generating more downforce in the form of 3,000 cars. So that's all you can do is work within yourself. And what you try to do is, is follow the path that the car takes you. So you'll find some parts that are actually, you know, good payback. You're getting benefit, benefit from them all the time as you change them slightly and understand them a little bit better. There's other parts of the car which really are giving you no return. So you sort of stop there and say, okay, what's wrong with that area? But if you don't have any idea what the other teams have as far as numbers are concerned, and even then, you know, whenever I question the numbers that the F1 have put out about the losses for this year's car against next year's car, if you listen to another team, there's the exaggeration factor steps in there, you know, all sorts of stuff about downforce 
everybody wants to sort of tell you more or the car is more efficient, all that sort of stuff. So all you can do is is go by yourself and try to understand what you're doing. Is it making sense? And more importantly, obviously, the, the aero platform as such, how the how the car will be for the driver to drive. You know, there's no point in having stupidly peaky downforce because he, he doesn't use that sort of thing. So you you go on down a blind alley, um, you're trying to get to the end of that blind alley seeing something, um, and hopefully that you see a little bit more than the other teams. And when next February, when it comes to sort of testing it, it will be a you know a bit of everything. And and as again, we've seen we've seen that with 2021. You know, some teams got the floor detail correct um other teams shouted and screamed about the fact the regulations were against them um but then with a little bit of development suddenly they're they're right in the ballpark and they're you know they're having a a pretty decent time of it so it's it's never going to be on it's never going to be known until the cars hit the track and then the stopwatch will tell all yeah, it's going to be brilliant to follow the development of these cars and when they finally break cover and, and get racing and while we've been a little bit cautious about the effectiveness of these regs. I think we're all looking forward to seeing how it plays out, and it'll certainly liven things up and mix things up in Formula One. Let's, Gary, just take a look at a slightly more easy to to understand situation because it's all playing out in front of us. Because obviously the development of the current cars is winding down. Mercedes had its last package with the floor barge boards and the front and rear cake tins change at Silverstone. James Allison has said that's it, say for a few minor tweaks. Christian Horner said developments all the way to Abu Dhabi, but I think that's that seems a little bit unlikely they'll go that far, but it's all part of the, the fun and games. But most teams have said, well, pretty much all of them have, have said that for the most part, the aero wind tunnel work is is all now on 2022. But how do you see the balance of power between Mercedes and Red Bull after what we saw at Silverstone? Um, well, it, it's obviously very close. Um, I do still think that the Red Bull is probably a slightly quicker car um, than, the, than the Mercedes. Um, you can never underestimate, you know, what Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes can pull out of something because obviously it's been very, very good for so many years. But I genuinely think that, that Red Bull have caught them. And, and that's a surprise. That's a surprise for Mercedes. Mercedes are sort of thinking, well, actually, you know, we should be three tenths or something or four tenths ahead of them on a given circuit. Um, and we're not anymore. At best, we're, we're nip and tuck. Um, and that that's that's for... Mercedes are really sort of being disappointed, I suppose you might call it, that they haven't got that little window. Whenever we look at competition as being, if you're talking about, you know, a hundredth of a second or a few thousandths of a second difference between the two of them, we'd, we'd be really happy. That's competition. But Mercedes don't look at that as competition. They look at that as we're being beaten still. So I think we've got a, a, a closer Mercedes now than we had prior to Silverstone. Um but there will be different. There's different tracks coming up. Hungary, obviously, you know, low speed, long, 180 degree corners, very hard on the front tires. Um, then we go to Spa. Then we've got Monza. You know, again, a very different track as far as downforce is concerned. So there will be developments coming along to suit these three th- types of track. And then I think after uh, after Monza, which Monza is its own little specific track. After Monza, then I think we'll end up seeing. Um, you know, a fairly stable package. I don't think we'll see much more after that, to be honest, because the tracks coming up after that sort of manage within the downforce levels that we'll already have seen. So I think my thing would be who can go to Spa with the best package will be the car that will take the second half of the championship because there's more tracks that suit that type of levels of downforce, that's that type of track than than, uh, than anything else. So 
for me, the car that's, uh, that's good at Spa will be the one that will win the championship between those two. It's an interesting situation because generally this season, the trend has been that when Red Bull's at its best, it's it's clear of Mercedes. Whereas often when Mercedes has been at its best, it's been a bit nip and tuck with, with Mercedes. Although there have been times where that Mercedes tyre advantage in terms of race stints has paid off. Spain is a great example of that, where actually Hamilton did manage to get pole and then managed to, to regain the lead, good race pace and good strategy. So quite an interesting little little balance there. I think Silverstone in some ways gave a little bit of a, an unrepresentative read in so far as, yes, Hamilton got pole, but it looked like Verstappen was going to get pole until the temperatures dropped and he was really struggling with those front tyres. So maybe that distorted things. But the, the great thing is that it's still really small little details that are making the difference because it's one thing to say one car's better than the other, and I think on average the Red Bull is better, but it's still generally tight enough for these little changes in conditions, changes in details, etc., to, to make all the difference, which actually sets us up for quite an exciting finish to the year. Yeah, it does. I mean, that, that's that's the important thing, I think, for everybody watching, is it a, a good, tight finish. But whenever you're saying that Red Bull, when they've been quicker, have been quicker than Mercedes, and when... When they haven't been, it's been nip and tuck. I mean, that's what we've had for the last, what, seven years with, with Mercedes, you know. They've just been quicker than everybody else by a reasonable amount. They, they, they had a, a cushion to play with. Um, that cushion's been taken away for both Red Bull and Mercedes, to be honest. So on a good day, they're, they're still pretty close. I think, uh, you know, we're talking about the cars here like they're, they're, uh, they're the dominant factor, but I think you have to bring in this Verstappen and, and Hamilton thing. You know, they, they definitely know how to get the best out of their car. Um, so the battle between those two is is immense, and obviously the the drive that they put into the team is immense. I spoke to some of the guys when I was up at Silverstone on Tuesday, some of the Red Bull guys from the test team that were there with um, doing some tire testing, and you know they 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 just idolise Max. You know he is just they give him a tenth of a second, and he takes two tenths of a second because they know that you know you. He has that feel of just giving him that little bit of lap time somehow, some little widget you put in the car that says this is going to be, you know, half a percent or a tenth of a percent more downforce. And he goes out and it, and it does. Uh, and, and I'm sure Lewis is exactly the same with uh, with Mercedes. Whereas the other one, the other drivers at the minute, it, it falls into that sort of cloud of maybe. Um, so those two drivers are driving those two teams dramatically. And as I say, I, I love to see the close competition. So... It's going to be different, different courses, different circuits, different, you know, um, suit different cars that little bit differently. But I think we're, as I say, Spa is such a fantastic track that that will be the circuit that will take me through the rest of the season. Yeah, if you if you extrapolate what we've seen over the last three different circuits we've been to as well, that dynamic has just manifested itself in such different ways. Obviously, in in France, it was so nip and tuck that they were. They were neck and neck at the start of the race, and they were neck and neck at the finish as well. It was incredible. In Austria, it didn't, it just didn't work for for Mercedes there. It suited the Red Bull perfectly. So, so Red Bull had a Max just had a, the biggest advantage we've seen all year. Then it goes back to Silverstone, which is a circuit that doesn't really expose the Red Bull weakness, but it at least plays to the Mercedes strength. And all of a sudden, Hamilton with a special lap and a bit of a weakness for Red Bull was able to be back on pole. Uh, and the rebel maybe the faster car slightly in the race, but what that did because they were still closer, but the rebel had this advantage is obviously it then sort of front loaded the action rather than 
the races we've seen early in the year where there's been this strategic balance over the course of the Grand Prix and it all comes together in the final few laps. Obviously, it's Silverstone. It exploded at the very start. So using those last sort of three different circuits that we've been to, I've got I've got great optimism that one way or another, we're going to keep seeing these guys have a really fascinating battle. And what we saw at Silverstone with this sort of front-loading of that... Um, boiling point and the the decisive moment of the Grand Prix obviously erupted into chaos and controversy um, which is nice because now that has absolutely stoked everything that we're going to see from, from, from now onwards so you've got this fine balance between the two teams and you've got an ever more electrically charged rivalry between Verstappen and Hamilton so now I feel like we can now reflect on Silverstone now knowing that Max is okay came out of hospital on the same day it was just a precaution and say okay I'm happy to say that that was good for the title fight I don't like seeing a car fly into the barriers with a force of 51 g at the speed that he did but if he can walk away from it and be okay you can at least take the consequences of it from a rivalry point of view and say this is probably going to make the rest of the year quite fun. <laughs> It's actually perfectly set up, isn't it? We've had that ignition point, what Gary was talking about with two great drivers who get everything out of the car going at it. This is this is what Formula One is all about and what we really want to see. And so that's, I think, why we're looking forward to it so much over the rest of the season and just hope it, uh, it goes all the way. So thanks very much, Gary and Scott, for your insight. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's loads to read there. If you enjoy podcasts, which I presume you do, given you've got this far, check out our sister titles, the Race IndyCar podcast and the Race MotoGP podcast, among others. And there's plenty to watch video-wise on our YouTube channel. Our attention is now turning to the Hungarian Grand Prix that leads us into the summer break. So we'll be back soon with everything you need to know from Budapest. (laughs) 